We're a go, brother. Hey, man. How's it going? It's going well, my man. I brought a little visual treat for you. I don't know if... Uh, oh, I love that, man. If you can see my man here. J-Dubs. J-Dubs. <laughs> J-Dubs. I thought nothing more appropriate to talk about some manly topics than the uh, man himself. That's right. He is, he is a man's man. <laughs> he is. He Jocko is. Willink. Love it, man. Cool guy. Yeah. Love his yeah. stuff. Good. That's one of the best. That's one of the best speeches I've it ever is. heard on the, on it the is. In personal development space. What do you think? Have you ever seen him uh, do jujitsu? As a are you wait? Are you up to a purple belt? What I'm a purple now? belt. Yeah. Now, what do you think mm-hmm. of him as a? Have you ever seen him do jujitsu? Uh, he's a skilled, skilled practitioner for is sure. He re- seriously, I mean, oh, I, yeah. I mean, he's a high level black belt trained with. Oh, he's uh, a black belt. I didn't. I mean, I didn't. Oh, know. yeah. I mean, there, I know, you can I you can Google big... some videos of him with. Uh, he trains with Dean Lister. Um, oh, jeez. There's some That's significant name. He's been in the game for uh, a, a while. This is not a new thing for him. Did uh, his stuff w- was a lot of that crossover from Navy SEAL training, or is that just something he sought out on his own? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I don't know if I know that story. I don't know that it's significantly pervasive in SEAL training. That's probably something he did on his own, especially at the level he does it. Right? They probably steal some some techniques and some things for SEALs. Just and general hand to hand combat. Yeah, yeah, but not the level he does it. Like he's done some high level competitions and some high level. So he got he he's he's his black belt was through Dean Lister BJJ. Or uh, through... He trains with Dean Lister okay. currently. I don't know who he got his black belt from. I'll, I'll tell you, neither one of us would like to go on the mats with him. I just <laughs> I can tell you that that would end very poorly in a very quick fashion. What? Plus, so, he just looks like a beast. He does, dude. He is such a beast. His hands and arms, and he's just a big dude. Yeah. What? Um, What's your lineage? What's your BJJ lineage? What is my BJJ? I don't even know. Is it a Brazilian thing? Are you through? It is. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu here in town. Felipe, um, Zicro. Um, Felipe if you Neto. got your black belt, would you? Would it be a Gracie? I mean, what, or what is your – I mean, like where are you – what's your – No, it's not through Gracie. Uh, I train with Alliance is the name of it, okay. Alliance Jiu-Jitsu. They have uh, quite a few studios around currently. I, you know, I've bounced around because I travel. I did some men in uh, Alabama. That was a non – I started with Felipe at Alliance when yeah. he first moved here from Brazil, actually. Um, oh, really? And, well, I guess technically I first learned from one of my chiropractic uh, classmates. Oh, really? Um, just and then trained formally under Felipe when he first just started. Just goofing around, or like was that? No, was I had that a jujitsu gym, and he was oh, a wrestler okay. and did jujitsu. And we were watching UFC, old school UFC, and like let's try this, you know. And nice. Um, so, but now trained under Felipe. I'm back with Felipe, did a couple other gyms, and have now ended back up under his one of his instructors. Other so. than. The sense of community, trying something difficult and overcoming something difficult, um, you know, exercise, using resistance, your muscles, your, your, sure. you know, what, what, what is, what are some of the things that maybe aren't so obvious or obvious for that matter, health benefits mm-hmm. of jujitsu? Cause a lot of people in this space tout it and I believe in it, but I mean, for you, your way further along for, for me, I call it fight club light. Um, it, there is something to be said about being in a position. Jeff, do you have this? Do you have? You, we need. You know what we need to do, Nick, producer Nick. We need. We need a. We need. Jeff has got. 
Dude, you've got some. You've, you've developed some dimes, some pearls along the way here. This is <laughs> the same. We need a we need a lexicon of Jeff. We need a whole book of. Uh, he's got he's got it all. It's it's awesome. He boils it down to a couple phrases. You notice that? That's really cool. Fight Club Light. Okay, uh, tell me what that means. <laughs> well, just there's something to be said for um, having somebody have their arm around your throat. And the feeling of potential hopelessness and learning to calm your mind, learning to um, know where that line is, when you should tap out, when you don't tap out, where the line is in, in feeling physical pain in compromising positions that is uh, is free. Learning where the line is, like how much you can withstand or yeah. or yeah. Okay. And then the feeling of helplessness, like there, I don't think people understand it. You can understand it in a verbal sense, but when there's a high level practitioner that maybe has your back or has control position, like a knee on belly, and you, it doesn't appear to be that problematic, but you, um, you can't move and they're just slowly sucking the life out of you in a controlled sense. And you have to, are you going to keep fighting or are you just going to give up? And you learn where that line is and you give up a lot and then you come back again and then you learn that, you oh, maybe I can withstand a little more pain and maybe I can withstand a little more force and maybe I can get out of this. And and so for me, just on a daily basis facing that is – and then being able to inflict that, there's some masculine necessity say, to that. that. Yeah, to learn, I, to learn your – masculine so i <clears throat> when i did weichiru karate like dad did remember he did mm-hmm. black belt weichiru so i was working with roy bedard who's still in tallahassee i believe and he's still around in the weichiru community amazing uh, martial artist amazing martial artist roy bedard and um he had this theory that you had to and it's kind of jordan peterson-esque like you had to recognize the violence within yourself acknowledge sure. it and, and control it mm-hmm. and not you know so that you didn't become abusive you didn't and and, and it's true for him martial arts allowed him to master that in himself and teach others mm-hmm. and then it wasn't that it was just masculine i mean feminine women have masculine traits just like sure. men have feminine traits so it wasn't you know i don't mean this i'm not trying to pigeonhole but um yeah, I, I can't speak to the feminine mindset. I could just speak to me as a male. I have a necessity within me that seems to be innate that I'd like a certain level of violence. Um, now, I've been um, – it's been, it's been pushed down over the generations, and I don't necessarily want to go to war, and I don't want to have a knife fight with you. Uh, right. But uh, get on the mats, and we have a agreed set of rules, and you know something bad could happen, and I – could get hitting yourself against another human being yes. in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's hard to explain. Um, and it's a little bit safer than getting punched in the face, <laughs> which hence, I don't necessarily hence, like, but have had happen to me, you know, in various settings. So I think, yes, I remember you know, that. we can you have a generational talk, but I think that generation just, you know, I, but I think it goes to your broader point. Like I know now that there is a certain level of uh, aggression within me that I have learned to master and control but not dampen, but control. I can focus it and I can use it if necessary or not use it when not necessary, uh, as opposed to being a slave to my greater emotions. Exactly, that exactly. That's, the, that's key. And, and we, we, we don't need to strip that away from men. We don't Correct. need to deny that in ourselves, men or women, but we do need to learn to control it. And maybe by identifying it and then learning to control it, that's the proper, that seems to be the proper way as best I can tell. 
I'm yeah. reminded of a podcast that's all over YouTube and certain various clips. And you've probably seen with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan and a couple a couple of cool things that they were said what they said were <clears throat> so Rogan says to Peterson something about it, what what Peterson said to him reminded him of better to be a warrior mm-hmm. in a garden than a gardener in a war. It's true. And that's that's for sure. And then and then Peterson says something like <clears throat> You shouldn't avoid the vi- I'm very much paraphrasing, but you sh- you should become a monster. You should become a monster and know the full potential of your wrath and your violence or whatever, and, and then but learn how and then learn how to control it. Control right? it. Yep. Because you know, not being or being not dangerous is not doesn't serve anybody. Being yep knowing what you're capable of and then controlling it and learning how to emotionally do it. That's when you're serving sure. humanity, so to speak. Yeah. I well, agree. on that talk topic, we should talk about yeah. testosterone. What do you think? Yeah, I agree, man. That's what we primarily, at least what I primarily do in our practice. And I know you do a lot of it as well. And this is, that's one of the topics that comes up. Maybe we'll just use that as a segue. That's probably, I got this question yesterday in the clinic. He's like, you know, my main concern is will I become aggressive? Will I get roid rage when I take this testosterone? Did you so, too, yeah. um, how would you, what do you that? say? What do I say? <laughs> so this is Dad, what I tell guys. Yeah, yeah. So this is what I tell guys. This is probably a common question. I say, good. Yeah. Good question. Something we need to address. That's a common misconception. I start out by saying, well, I just answer the question bluntly. And, and as I see it, uh, the opposite is true. It calms men down a lot of times, uh, mm-hmm. significantly. I've never seen a man on testosterone replacement um, get aggressive. And here's how I explain it to him is when you feel well inside, when you feel full, when you feel confident, when you feel your complete sense of self from an energy perspective, from a mind sharpness perspective, you are – you you will just feel good and you're slow to anger. But when you're short on all those, when you're a little bit tired, you're sleeping a little bit poorly, right. uh, you don't feel as good. There's a strong f- sense of well-being that is derived from testosterone for males and females. But in this case, males that we're talking about, that when you don't have that, you get really short and you have a short fuse and you snap. You're not necessarily aggressive in the sense of like, physical violence, but you're just short with people and you don't give anybody any leeway. Um, a lot of my examples come from, from children. And I always explain it this way, right? Your, your little son or daughter goes to grab a cup off the shelf and they drop the glass. It shatters. And you're like, damn it. I told you don't grab cups. Yeah. And then you step back and you're like, why did I just yell at him? Yeah. But when you feel good inside, you're just, you're, you're running on all cylinders. You're clicking at work. You're a better employee employer you're you feel good you're driven that same incident happens and you're like dang it i'm sorry buddy man we should have had plastic cups up here everyone to the car we're going to target we're getting all plastic cups family trip right and that's that's the difference that happens you just feel good and so you you convey that confidence that comes through in your daily interactions yeah that Um, confidence yeah and things tend to roll off your back. We know that. Yes, for sure. I tell when people you're this. Optimized. When you're optimized. Not a, you're, we're not going super physiological. We're not going uh, silliness. But um, you rarely hear of, I don't know, professional boxers getting in bar fights. You rarely hear of, uh, so if true. ever, MMA fighters because they're like, dude, seriously? 
you know, two guys, you don't want this, man. Like, come on, just back away. I don't want anything. There might be something bad that happens, right? I feel good. I know I'm confident in my levels. I'm confident in how I feel. I'm confident in how I perform. Um, and so I walk away from things. So, yeah, I don't ever see that really. I've never actually seen it in my practice, period. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's a lot of biochemical basis to that, how testosterone affects neurochemistry. Mm-hmm how the lack of it affects neurochemistry and how feeling well affects neurochemistry. When you don't feel well, you get a short fuse. I mean, that's, yeah. we, we know that empirically just from states of illness that we can find ourselves mm-hmm. in lack of sleep to actual acute illness. <clears throat> and yeah, I, you know, I, people always ask that it's a big concern. It's a concern a lot of times for female partners of men mm-hmm. that come in and I tell them, the optimized male is so much more fun to hang out with yes. than than the, than their non-optimized self, and you mm-hmm. get this like it's almost like a low it's it's almost like a it's like a it's like a lower level of hypomania like it's definitely not manic it's definitely not quite hypomanic but you just have a and it's not euphoric it's like sub euphoric like you just feel well mm-hmm. in a way that you haven't been haven't before especially going from that depleted state to that optimized state mm-hmm. and so i find that men and let's see if you agree but they're gentler actually they're more loving yes they're more kind they're kind of more compassionate things roll mm-hmm. off the back both males and females things don't seem to be and we know that testosterone is a natural analgesic um you know uh and uh, it's an anxiety reliever mm-hmm. it's an anti it's a natural antidepressant right and when there's biochemical studies on the neurochemistry there that we can we can point to, but I think that if you get ultra high doses, then you start to look at you know if we look at anabolic androgenic steroids, right, uh, mm-hmm. synthetic allele steroids, you could classify them, and people have done this that this one's more androgenic than it is anabolic. You know, mm-hmm. this one's more anabolic that you know meaning promoting nitrogen retention in the body and inducing muscle mass growth and um, et cetera, hypertrophy, um, or this was androgenic, right? It's going to affect the neurochemistry and and, and cause aggressiveness. And then in in synthetic hormones, you could see so-called roid rage. And then, of course, in in some of the corticosteroids, we see people have mania or irritability, like, you know, the prednisones and their derivatives, Mm -hmm. the adrenal hormones. But in testosterone, I don't find that. Um, yeah, I the only time I've ever seen it in my practice is when someone comes in and they're trying to get off of a, a synthetic. That is a, yes. a known effect. And in in my clinic, I have um, I I have an open door policy, so to speak. With I, I don't I don't judge what you're on, but like well, you know, I don't prescribe those. But if you're on them, let me know. Let's talk about the risks. Yes. And that is one of the big things that is a risk, and that's why a lot of guys get off of it. It's just the the bang for your buck is not there in synthetics and I'd never recommend them. There's so little benefit to risk ratio. Whereas testosterone replacement is the exact opposite of that. Absolutely. Testosterone replacement, high bang for your buck, low risk. But I think a lot of physicians and a lot of uh, lay people have confused the two, right? Anabolic steroids and testosterone replacement. Really? I mean, they yeah. just, they conflate them really. It's, it, and it's, it's sad I, because mm-hmm. they're missing out on the benefit of it. Now, yes. now I will say, one of the issues that can occur is, and it's, and a, and a woman will tell you this, you know, and it's not to, 
it's just the phys- physiologic reality of being a woman and having a menstrual cycle and fluctuating hormones more so than men do. If you don't get the estrogen right, you can sometimes see problems with sleep, irritability, mm-hmm. um, among the other things that we know, breast tenderness and flushing and things. And I find that can be managing or not managing well can make it not managing well can break it. So the funny thing is that not so much the testosterone always, but the management of the estrogen side effects, right? So just for the audience sake, we know that in the body, testosterone is converted to either dihydrotestosterone, DHT, by 5-alpha reductase, or in the case of estrogen, by aromatase, so testosterone to aromatase. And we need, it's not that we don't need it in a a man's body, we do need estrogen, it's not just a female's hormone, but in excess, it can be a problem. How do you, do you agree with that, and then how do you manage estrogen in your patients? Yeah, I agree with it. Um, I think the male's physiology can handle testosterone. Um, It's a wider range of um, dosing that, that, gets you the effect that you're looking for. Estrogen, however, very small window of, of uh, levels that can make big pronoun, pronounced effects. I tell my patients the difference between somebody doing it on the side and somebody doing it as a main patient base source is their, their ability to control estrogen. I see one of two things. The most common thing I think I see, but they're both pretty equal, is we just smash estrogen altogether or we don't even know that that's a potential problem, right? Those are the two dichotomies. The most common thing I see is like take a whole pill of an astrazole, a whole one milligram um, every time you take a shot. It's like, holy moly, you're taking two milligrams. Oh, you see them that bad. Yeah. Daily one milligram of an astrazole. No, every shot. Sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. So like maybe once a week 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 or once a week or twice a week. week. Yeah. Yeah, Usually twice a week. So, um, yeah, there was a good study. I don't know what call it a study. Observational article, observational piece that came out of uh, low T-centers. They're a big, big uh, multi-practice clinic based out of lots of states, but uh, primarily in Texas. And they did a good study to look at their practitioners and look at their data of estrogen, how it's controlled, what – uh, what AI did they use? What aromatase inhibitor so did they use? Data quali- it's kind of a qualification, qualifying yeah. Type of study, yeah. And just looked back at their studies of they had like seventeen thousand patients in these clinics wow. on testosterone, so a huge number of patients yeah. uh, from a I forget the I want to say a five year window two thousand nine ish to two thousand fifteen ish maybe like somewhere in that range, yeah. um, five to seven year window. Um, so it's just, yeah, I think it is, it makes or breaks the practice what of testosterone. What did they find in that? So they found that um, a lot of, they were looking at libido, they were looking at the type of prescription, and then they were looking at uh, uh, libido, gynecomastia, the AI prescribed, as well as whether or not docs always prescribed it. So they found that... Um, about 30% of the docs always prescribed it, regardless of symptomology. Um, they found that anastrozole is the most common one that was prescribed. They also found that some docs commonly use some selective androgen receptor modulators, some CIRMs, to modulate estrogen. 
they found that the biggest skew was in the age of the patient. So the younger crowd had less of an issue with uh, estrogen. They had the higher, the older crowd had a higher problem with estrogen. Now that's it was fascinating. A, yeah. Because I've seen that empirically. And we've talked about this mm-hmm. where I have had um, older men come into my clinic and post-operative follow-up. And for, I don't know the exact genesis or what was the impetus to do this, but checking their testosterone and, De novo. These are not people on right. testosterone therapy. What I have found, and again, this is empiric data. This is not published research, everybody. This is uh, N of maybe like 15 patients. But it was just shocking. What I found was that almost to a T, the older the man, and I'm talking 55 or older, they had this naturally occurring, they would have these lower testosterones. That's not a shocker. But what was interesting was they had this naturally occurring higher level of estrogen mm-hmm. that was way out beyond the, the quote unquote normal or high normal range that really, that threw me for a loop. I was shocked by that. So it's interesting to hear you say that because that kind of validates my empirical observation. Yeah. I think I see this in a subset of older men. There's this, and I, don't, I haven't figured out what the, the, the precursor to this is, but there's a certain, certain subset of men skews higher in my observational data, in my practice, the older men, 55 and older that just have naturally occurring higher estrogen levels. Um, we're starting to see some data come out that high estrogen levels may be more associated with prostate cancer. Um, it's definitely uh, adverse cardiovascular events. Um, it, you know, it's the chicken or the egg. Sometimes we're not exactly sure, but it's definitely interesting observational. Um, so you're, you're well, hold on. I just want to stop you there, Derek. That's a really good point. And that, that can't really be understated the chicken, the egg. And it's, and it also, we can talk about, accepting falsely or rejecting falsely the null hypothesis. So type one, and type two errors, true, true, and unrelated. Because what I've, again, we're still trying to figure this out. And I'm not, and I'm not here. I'm not saying that this is or is not, but it's just is an interesting food for thought. If aromatase is predominantly found in the peripheral fat, okay. Mm-hmm. And not so much in the, in the lean body mass and the muscle. And if if on gen if in general as you age there's some element of sarcopenia unless you mitigate it with resistance training and or protein intake or some kind of promotion of an anabolic environment, on average you're going to have the average person you're going to have less muscle and more fat as you age. Sure. So there's going to be at least the reasonable environment in which there'd be more fat cells. Or, or at least fat per se, volume maybe percentage, not cells per se, but which then could mean that there'd be more cha- more aromatase to mm-hmm. c- to generate more estrogen, right? <clears throat> You're gonna have less estrogen re- or less testosterone receptors, less quote unquote consumption by muscle of testosterone to p- further promote more generation of testosterone. And um, but is is the health problem is the estrogen a marker of the health problem of mm-hmm. of sarcopenia and less functionality or is it really the cause and i think it may be both even it is my, sure. my bias because we know that for instance we know that exogenous estrogen tends to be a thrombogenic a clot forming a clot promoting mm-hmm. substance so much so that in the cases of myself as a general surgeon in that hat i wear when we have some of these difficult to treat GI bleeds, we will literally, even in the oh, hospital really? setting, yeah, pre- prescribe synthetic estrogens on purpose <laughs> to males to promote clotting because the clotting is less of a risk in that situation where you're literally dying right. from bleeding. 
or slowly. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. We don't, we don't, and, but here's an interesting thing, right? We don't, we don't prescribe testosterone, you know? Sure. If, 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 if testosterone was such a clot promoter or a ca- causing, causing, right. <clears throat> intraluminal clot formation acutely, which would then cause a heart attack, then why is it estrogen that we're... That we're Interesting. You know, it, it, we, yeah, again, like you said, you know that estrogen has... Some yeah, stuff. the estrogen control in testosterone replacement therapy, I think, is integral. I I had always heard that um, early in my practice that the, the higher the fat content, the higher the aromatase, the higher the conversion was the sort of premise. I don't, see, don't that. see that... I don't see that play out in my practice from people taking exogenous testosterone. I can't tell you a, a bigger guy with more fat by visual assessment does not necessarily convert more of his testosterone replacement therapy to estrogen. I can't, I have not been able to pick that person out. Um, and- well, let me ask you this, you know, there's a, in the, in the world of bro science, Oh, Hey, you're an estrogen converter or, Oh, mm-hmm. Hey, you're a DHT converter. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, do you think that genetic predisposition to be a higher estrogen converter exists just from empirical observation? 150% yes. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I I see that. Yeah. I, um, I have steadily, steadily brought my estrogen control down to really, I probably do it on a finite stage much more than any practitioner. I know I use quarter dosing of an astrazole, um, Instead of whole or half pills, I use. Has it shocked you how powerful that drug is? Oh man, it will. Yes, it's insane. Yeah, because you can't powerful. go the other way, right? You can't go. You can't smash it. You can't just say because a lot of times the guys, other than sexual side effects, they don't uh, they don't necessarily feel the low estrogen early on. They'll feel the high estrogen, but they won't feel the low estrogen. But yeah. you, you, it's a strong, quickly acting too. It's a quick acting it strong. Is. And now you said something interesting. You said other than sexual side effects. Give me an example of what you mean by that. In the from low of, estrogen, yeah, from low estrogen. Yeah, guys who are smashing their estrogen to a to a zero. When you say smashing, will, you mean reducing it. To reducing, it, sorry, yeah, reducing it down to way below because either they're doing it on their own or they're dealing with a practitioner that doesn't quite understand it. and They're taking a large amount of anastrozole. They'll see erection difficulty and sometimes low libido, there low libido go. and erection yeah. difficulty. Yeah, and that was so, one of the things that they looked at in this study was is high estrogen a problem. In this low T center, here's something article. interesting uh, to set up this next thing. Producer Nick, can you see if the, you can find anything real quick on? Does he, did, and maybe Jeff, you know, does Huberman have anything on YouTube or otherwise on any other platform on the neurochemistry of estrogen? And let me give you an example of why I'm asking that, or let me explain why I'm asking that. One of the things that was really interesting to me is you're absolutely right, Jeff. I agree with what you said. And one of the things that was interesting to me was learning the role of estrogen in males and the role of testosterone in females because sure and and i'm sitting here before you as a as a living example of this i was taught you know uh you know testosterone is the male hormone estrogen and progesterone are female hormones but reality is that both sexes need the the, the converse hormones or the op the opposing hormone and so what i have as best i can tell from the literature as i have currently learned it and researched and looked at it right now <clears throat> A, a big part now testosterone is going to play a big role at the level of the gonads at the level of the sexual organs the blood vessels of the sexual organs the the physiologic response and it plays a big role in the neurochemistry but indirectly in the in the what i mean by that is <clears throat> at the level of the neuron after you cross the blood brain barrier 
and in the psychogenic and neurochemical response, if you think about the, just think about sexual intercourse in general, estrogen plays a massive role at that level. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny if, so I, I got to thinking and see if you agree with this. This is just deductive reasoning. That's not, I don't, I don't know the exact sign. I don't have an exact study to point you to and maybe find something with Huberman, but if you are an older guy and you are complaining of poor libido, mm-hmm. this is outside of function. This is just purely libido. <clears throat> you makes you wonder. And you then you have low testosterone. Oh, well, it's the low testosterone cause it. Yeah, is it? Uh, or is the low testosterone, which is what? The source of your estrogen, mm-hmm. thus giving you a low estrogen. Yeah, it's interesting. Neuro, you know, so it's interesting. Huh? Have you ever, I mean, do you agree with that potentially being a. Uh, For sure. Like you see sometimes lower aromatization. And is the problem with guys having that lower aromatization that just had low testosterone to start with, right? And so that's yeah. part of that sexual. It definitely plays, estrogen definitely plays a role in sexual performance and libido for males. Absolutely. That we yeah, know. it looks like the Huberman Lab has got some information on that, but it's pretty dense and it's high. You know, he does a lot of high quality work, and he's gonna sure. he's gonna give you a lot of information. We'll have to we'll we'll come back to that because it's it's mm-hmm. but but it's interesting. He does talk about that specifically, and so you know, it's funny. Like I I remember when I I had to get on testosterone. You're on just for full disclosure. We're both on uh, testosterone replacement therapy with pellet therapy, but I remember when I first got on it. Again, as a consequence of this old dogmatic thinking, I was like, well, I don't clearly I don't want any estrogen in my body. Right. I don't want I know which which nobody wants that for sure. But I, but but to the point where I was going to, you know, smash, as as you say, the, the estrogen, <laughs> estrogen and boy, that was not fun. I, yeah, that your was joints I was like, ache. Yeah, that's another common ache. one. I'm like, I, my libido was way off. Like I just it was bizarre. Like I didn't feel bad. Um, and I, and my energy was fine, but I just was like, my joints were aching. I felt off. My libido was mm-hmm. in this weird off place. I don't know. And, um, it felt awful and I didn't realize it. And then, mm-hmm. and then you're right. Then you kind of start tinkering with the anastrozole and you're like, whoa. And you do this with your patients. It's amazing how little of that stuff you need you to don't need much. inhibit the aromatase in your body. Right. Would you agree? Yeah. I agree. So, I, th- I was going to say, early you on, know, did you make some of those same mistakes in your patients or, and or yourself? Well, I, I yeah, myself, I, I had to find out my own personal, I think. I remember um, you called me one time. You remember, do you remember I'm this? super sensitive to estrogen. No, yeah. I know what. You were like, I'm flushing over this. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I think I was like, Hey, did you, or I can't remember how it came when we talked about your estrogen. Like, Oh yeah. But did yeah, you I, check it? I, I teach this to patients all day, and I still sometimes forget to take my AI. But um, I explain to this to my patients because this is the most common presentation I see. And tell me if this rings true. I've, I've observed this with my patients, right? They start out taking yeah. testosterone. They're low. Say they come in at 250, 300, whatever it is. They, they ramp up pretty quickly. Testosterone's effects are really quick uh, as well. They feel really good, and they're cruising along. Then four to Get six weeks to later mind. – then four to four to six weeks later, their um, their estrogen elevates 
You yeah. know, the testosterone got up and now here comes yeah. estrogen and now they're close together and they don't feel as good. And the number one thing I hear guys saying is they'll, they'll come in for their six week labs and they're like, I felt great out of the gate, but yes. now I don't feel so good. I need some more testosterone doc. Yes. Like, yes. Well, let's do some labs first. Let's check. Cause I'm pretty sure I, I, I got that dose. That's the mature, well-seasoned Jeff. Now, hold on a second. Was, did you, did you fall for quote unquote fall for that initially? Did you ever say, well, yeah, mm. I guess you kind of do or, or did you? Yeah, I don't know. No, I fell for it in my female dosing. We can talk about that later. For sure, that was a definite mistake yeah. that I, I made early on. I was chasing estrogen symptoms in women with more testosterone. Okay. Um, in my men, though, I, I, I think because I'm not a, a go big or go home physician, I'm not a more is better physician. Um, and what you're I noticed is driven. The, 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 as the estrogen got built up in response to this elevated testosterone that they were now having this exogenous source, it, it created what I always just described to them as like a dirty burn. You still felt good, <laughs> dirty but burn. you just also felt a little bloated. You felt yeah. a little moody. You felt a little yeah. water retention. You had yeah. a little acid reflux. You had a little yes. bit of flushing at night. And so what you really needed was not more testosterone. You needed better effective estrogen control to drive that down and create a, a higher difference between those two levels. You didn't need more testosterone. And there's, I, a, bio, there's a biochemical basis for that, right? We talk about mm -hmm. women going through menopause and having hot flushes. We know that estrogen has very impressive effects on the vasomotor function of the mm -hmm. blood vasculature of the, or of your, of your vascular system. So that's their flushing. We also know that it lowers your esophageal sphincter tone. Mm -hmm. So there's your reflux. I mean, this is classic. You're right. Right on the money. That's exactly what happens. But so, it's, it's such an odd constellation of symptoms for male patients. Yeah. They can't really put that together. Yeah. And so they're they don't understand. Think, yeah, yeah. They just knew they felt better when they started testosterone. Now yeah. they don't feel as good. It must mean they need more testosterone. So I, I have, I've actually over the years, I prescribed smaller and smaller doses, I think with better and better results you know, with better estrogen control. Smaller, yeah. smaller doses of pellets or smaller, smaller, smaller injectables my yeah. dosing on injectables i think i have done a much better job of dialing in over the years um, a smaller more accurate dose and building is easier than starting high lowering higher low you know this sort of zigzag approach um pellets are a different beast altogether than injectables uh, as a consumer i completely love pellets i will, I will never go back to injectables um and i know you from a data point, really like the pellets as well. I'm a huge fan of it. There's yeah. more. I listen. I I think you know if somebody wants to, right. It, there's a there's probably an economic reason pellets are just they're more costly to produce and thus they're they're more costly to the patient. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it's they're bioidentical, and maybe let's have a separate podcast on that. What do you think? I mean, I um, it's yeah. probably it probably deserves its own podcast. So I won't get too much in the weeds, but but um since we're talking about estrogen control, but yeah, I, I do too. And then in the cypionate is a synthetic. And anyways, I, I, I feel like, and this is something interesting. So would you agree that the cypionate tends to be more quick to aromatize than the bioidentical testosterone that you find in the pellets? I would say all injectables aromatase at a higher rate, not necessarily yeah. quicker, but at a higher rate than, than pellets. Yeah. My, yeah, that's a better way the, to say the things that I tell my patients is both are going to raise your testosterone. 
I don't have any question of that, right? I'm not worried about it like I am with creams. I'm not worried about it like I am with patches and nasal sprays and yada yadas. Um, They will both raise your testosterone. However, when I look at your hemoglobin and hematocrit and I look at your estrogen conversion, those two are much, much less on pellets as compared to injectables Absolutely. across the board. Now you might be a low converter or a high converter still, but it'll be much less uh, of a problem, which is specifically the reason I choose pellets as a consumer. I'm a high, I don't worry about hemoglobin, hematocrit, never been a problem for me. I'm a high, high, high estrogen converter. So much so that when I started, that's interesting. Yeah. We have shared genetics there. Um, When I started injectables, I was down to doing daily shots five days a week. I cut my dose, same dose. I took oh the weekly gosh. dose and I it cut it. Trying bad, to, huh? I could I trying to mitigate it. And I was like, well, this is silly. I don't want to do daily injections. And yeah. then you introduced me to pellets actually, and you did my first pellet. And, and so that, that started that for me. And I was like, oh, just a, just a total game changer um, in how they're, uh, how my body handles them and specifically the estrogen control. So that's interesting. I, my body, again, shared genetics, at least 50%. And, and from, you know, me and you, and then I, I have the same problem. It was so interesting. I, I, um, I wasn't sure if I had the right testosterone dose recently. My wife is a nurse practitioner and um, works at our clinic and she, she's my, she helps me with my pellet therapy. And, um, <clears throat> Uh, in terms of, you know, getting them inside my body. <laughs> and um, I wanted to check my testosterone, see how my levels were. And um, at the six-week mark, checked it. This was recently. And I felt off, and I, and I thought I needed more. It turns out I needed less. And I was like <laughs> what was 1,700 your testosterone. I was like, whoa, Nelly. I was like, whoa. I was like, this is way too high. Okay, I need to I need scale back down tell my prescriber to scale me back down. Um, but what was really fascinating was even at 1700, my estrogen was like only 30, 30. Oh, nice. Yeah. I was, and I was like, look at that. Now had it been Scipionate or any of the other injectable forms, um, just from personal experience and from clinical knowledge and empiric data, it would have been sky high. It would have been horrible. For sure. I like, yeah, I like pellets for that. I tell patients it depends which one, which camp do you want to fall into? Do you want me and the pellet to monitor you and keep you in these normal ranges? Or are you going to be an active participant in this and be able to report and notice those symptoms and cut your dose in half to maybe a third uh, if you're doing injectables and be mindful in the onset of estrogen symptoms? And you're going to have to be an active participant in this much more than you would on pellet therapy. So, you know, it's interesting if it's so symptomatic and it is, and it's a problem and it's, and it's, it's nuanced at this point in your practice, how do you monitor a and B mm-hmm. then, and treat like, do you, do you, and, and then, you know, yeah. are you right specifics? out of the gates, like the 30% in the study out of Texas that are, that are given? Sure. Rheumatism? I don't mind doing? giving my protocols. I'll, I'll share my trade secrets with share you, Jason. Your trade secrets. <laughs> So uh, if you're a pellet patient, uh, you start today, day one, right? You get a pellet. I don't treat your estrogen right out of the gate. I want to see how you do or don't aromatize. Uh, But I will start you on some DIM supplementation, um, most likely. DIM is a cruciferous vegetable extract that uh, helps modulate. Yeah, yeah, helps modulate estrogen. It's not as strong. 
I don't know if obvious or not, but it's not nearly as strong. It does. Here's how I tell other physicians when I'm teaching them pellet therapy. It doesn't treat high estrogen. It right. prevents high estrogen. Yeah. So if someone has high estrogen in response to your treatment, too late. You've missed the window for DIM. Let's bring it down with an AI, and then we'll add the DIM. Um, yeah. If you're an injectable person and you start today, I start you out on an astrozole right out of the gate. Um, right. Oh, you super do, low right dose, out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Um, no matter at, the starting dose. Correct. No matter the starting dose, I start you at week two, and oh, I start okay. you on a quarter milligram a week. Now, this is a protocol you developed after empirical observation tweet, or did you get this from? No. Uh, yeah, there's a good there, and I don't know of any. Maybe you can tell me if I've looked. There is no evidence based treatment protocols for estrogen um, control during testosterone replacement therapy. As I've far as seen, I know, it. I'm not seeing, and, and 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 that's unfortunate. I think that's a big. I think it's a big problem, honestly. Yeah. So this is a this is a, uh, a treatment protocol that I've developed on my own. I started out of the gate week to a quarter milligram once a week, um, and what I find the if I overshoot, meaning too much, which is really rare, about one to two percent of males they go to Q two weeks at a quarter milligram. That's the and then. Uh, if their estrogen starts to creep up, I just add a quarter milligram, and I, I have, my data currently is 85% of my patients are somewhere between once a week and three times a week, a quarter milligram. Oh, okay. Interesting. So you have some people that are up to three times a week. Mm -hmm. At a quarter milligram. Still less than a full pill, though, which right. I think is the standard. I always tell people the most common thing I see, and i just pulling this from my observation, is if you were a just run-of-the-mill getting testosterone replacement from, from somewhere, you would do 200 milligrams of testosterone and you do a full milligram of anastrozole all the week. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's, that's like, boop, just shoot it out of the hip. Everybody gets the same thing. Yeah. Um, and some guys do great. That's right. Some guys do fine. That's why they do it, right? You can treat 60% of the patients and not have to think. Um, right. But that other 40% are like, God, estrogen or testosterone just didn't work for me. It wasn't that good. It wasn't that good. It's because you weren't doing it well your doc just took the lazy route um right and so or were yeah. properly educated honestly. yeah or weren't yeah. properly educated so i i test at six weeks um i test at three months and i test at six months repeating that's that's my protocol i'm blood six working. weeks three months six months and six months thereafter yep okay and how quick do you find that you can at least on injectables how quick can you find that you can dial somebody in Get three months a... easy three okay. months easy yeah i Typically take that long, or or no. at least by three months. At the long, on the longest, long. the longest patient three months. Uh, yeah. We do a little something different in my practice. I promote patient communication. I tell them if you're having a problem, come in before six weeks. We have a, a line that they can uh, they can communicate with us. That's just for patients on testosterone oh, therapy. Yeah. Uh, so I tell them at the onset, like I've debated between this. I don't want to put these symptoms in their brains, but um, <laughs> yeah. if you're having this X, Y, or Z estrogen symptoms. Well, what, is, what are those for the people at home? And, and what sure, are the most common one I see with guys across the board, gynecomastia is the least common that I see. Yes. Um, it's a and late onset. Late symptom. Yep. Yeah, it's a late yeah. onset or patient specific. There's some guys that are uber sensitive to it, but they're few and far between. The most common is uh, water retention, um, bloating, moodiness, and hot flashes. Those are the yeah, big the three. Yeah, the skin is a telltale sign. I see that all yeah. the time. Ears are bright red. I, can, I always tell people, yes. you're going to come in for your six-week lab. I'm going to see you walking down the hallway, and I'll know if your estrogen's high. Exactly. It's so you got crazy. a big moon you face. Can... You're like, I feel great, Doc. And I'm like, no, and you they don't. They always <laughs> say they feel great, and they're like, you know, kind of huffing and puffing a little bit. Maybe this is the edema, and then they got this 
these cheeks that are rosy, the ears yep. that are right red, that vasomotor flushing is sure, so, sure. yes. Yeah. And so it's, you know, and I see that coming from some people that are doing treatment elsewhere and are switching clinics and things like that. Estrogen, I think, is really nuanced and is, it takes a learned um it's a big learning curve for physicians to really properly. And frankly, I can't imagine being a primary care, trying to do that nuanced dosing and then walk in the next room and, you know, I got a female patient that needs a pap. And then I got a, uh, an elderly patient that needs a flu shot. And then I got a, a you know, a pregnant patient in the next door. And like, that must be terrible. Like, so I just, Very I, I hone in super difficult for a primary care. I just, I'm like, I do this all day, every day, nuanced testosterone replacement therapy adjustments that's that's primary it sounds like you would agree with the fact with the statement that the prescribing and management of testosterone therapy or at least to do it in an optimal way a patient that the patient derives the greatest benefit from is much more difficult than practitioners realize I think it is more difficult than practitioners realize, but I also think it is as difficult as some practitioners realize they is why they don't do it. But I think they don't yeah, articulate exactly. it well. I think they have a communication problem, right? What, what do they say? You don't need that. Ah, you don't need that. And what they really mean is I don't have the time. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the training to handle this for you. I've got 10 minutes with you every quarter at best to be able to fix this for you. You know, and so they say, ah, you don't need that. Yeah, what well, you're good. Well, um, that's part of it too. But you know, I, I wonder if you agree with this. I think part of it too is the mindset of medical treatment that can promote and enhance wellness is maybe discounted a little bit. And let me give you a deeper mm -hmm. example of what I mean by that. So we're going to talk about this in a in a future episode, and maybe we can do this the next episode. Actually, the cardiovascular effects risks and safety profile of testosterone therapy. There was a really good article that you and I reviewed together. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was a few weeks ago we talked about it. Yeah, the New, like New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, yeah, New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, July 2023. This was interesting. I just, it, I, you know, among all the things here, I was looking at this. I had this, up on, had this on my desk. And so let me give you, we can use this as a little teaser, right? Well, this is a little bit of a, a precursor, a, a foreshadowing here. They talked about, testosterone therapy and they talked about the fact that the lack of hypogonadism they described it as a non-life-threatening illness and the fact uh and kind of we'll talk about it more specifically uh when we talk about it if you're if you're willing to do that but they talked about it as you know it's not a oh here it is Quote, however, because testosterone deficiency is not a life-threatening condition, <clears throat> and then it goes on to talk about the uncertainty about cardiovascular outcomes has weighed on treatment decisions by clinicians and patients. And then that's fine to talk about that and, 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 and why it's tough for people to talk about it. But that, that's true. That's a good point. But here's the other point of that. <clears throat> that's like saying – in a sense, we're not going to care about you or we're not going to get too worried about your state of health until it's a life-threatening situation. Right. And that, I mean, that right there is what we were talking about, right? I mean, why, why wait till you get to that point to worry about it? Maybe we should be worrying about it ahead of time so that we don't get to those states. What do you think? Yeah. 
Um, I <laughs> I have lots of thoughts about that. I <laughs> that's a loaded question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I you know I I'm not happy with the state of traditional medical care currently. I think a lot of that got thrust forward with the past couple of years and, and the COVID situation brought a lot to light. Um, and so I, I disagree with a lot of the paradigms of the current medical model. I participate in the current medical model um, and I like to steal some tools and some very, but I want to pick and choose. And I disagree that something that is not life-threatening is not worth treating because you know, I always tell people like, what is the gold standard of research? What would you say is the gold standard for a lot of research articles? You're asking me personally? Yeah, like what if 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 drug if I'm a drug company and I say, Jason, test this drug and see if it works. What is what is one of the go- significant gold standards of whether it can beat what? It's it's effective. I'm sorry, repeat that last part. So if I have a drug and I'm saying I want you to test this blood pressure drug, what is a right. common gold standard that the drug company uses to determine effectiveness? Like if it uh, placebo, you mean I guess placebo. placebo? Correct. Yeah. So if this drug is better than what is contained in the power in you to change yourself, this drug is <laughs> then it's like, oh my God, we found the holy grail. We just found a billion dollar drug because it was better than your brain, right? So there is a lot inside of us that I think can can determine our own health. And so so to say that once all those systems have shut down and now we're in a life-threatening situation, that's the only time we can intervene, intervene I think is, is a real misconception of what health should be. Maybe we should start earlier and prevent, prevent, prevent. Maybe if we treated low testosterone, we wouldn't have uh, muscle loss and then we wouldn't have hip fractures. Maybe right. if we treated yeah. testosterone early, uh, yeah. testosterone deficiency earlier, we wouldn't have a sequel of events that came of that. Um, now, you have to be mindful and you have to do things safely, but to just say it's it's not worth treating because it's not a life-threatening issue, I think, you know. But isn't that it, interesting though, right? And, I, and, and, and in that paradigm. context, in that context, now I'm, I'm, I'm purposely using that word. I don't want to this is a great article by these guys and gals and this whole study group, the Traverse Study Investigators. So I'm not at all demeaning them or being pejorative because in that context, this is an actually a very appropriate statement. And they're actually, they're kind of being an apologist and they're kind of being, they're kind of describing one of some of the flaws actually and the reasons why people might avoid it. And so I get it, but, but I thought it was also very telling when, when put in our context of assessment and what we're looking at specifically. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to, in no way, detracting from the Traverse um, uh, Clinical Trials author, <clears throat> but it, you're right. And I think what you said was very interesting in terms of placebo and your own ability to, mm, for your body to heal itself or this softer science of whatever positive emotion, the neurochemistry changes and the, your ability to, it just sounds silly to say it, heal yourself, but there is a, there is a reality to it. And I've seen yeah. that you and I have both seen it and I've seen it at the highest level of the sickest patients right. in, as a critical care physician. You, you just also, generally, you, well, you, you just generally know, I mean, you generally, I can tell you if, if, if I get 10 trauma surgeons in here that are very experienced, it is my belief that if they are honest or any anybody that practice, practices medicine in the acute inpatient hospital setting, you can tell if the patient's kind of given up mentally, mm-hmm. they're not going to yeah. have a good outcome. Not, yeah. More likely than not, if there's a patient that's determined to get better, they're going to have mm-hmm. a better outcome. And those two, and, and I'm talking about 
patient A is, <clears throat> you know, you it, it, it is the same or equivalent to patient B in terms of their age, physiology, sure. you know, a, a logistic regression analysis, if you will. You know that they're, they're if all things being equal, pathology also being equal, the person that believes they're going to get better, and I and I've never, I I can't put it. I can't tell you the exact molecular, biochemical, neurochemical uh, reasoning. Sure, because we've never looked down that pathway. Not completely. I think people are, are beginning sense. to, but yeah, it's fascinating. I, and I can tell you, this space is just not going to do well because they... It, Let me I ask you know. this. I think this is how I practice too, is, is it your right to tell me that I shouldn't do a treatment because you deem my symptoms not worthy of the oh, justification gosh. for treatment? Absolutely not. I agree. Yeah, exactly. Who are you to say to what's you, important? What's that? Who are you to say what's important for exactly. me on either side, right? I, I, I think that goes both ways in a sense. I tell my patients this. I'm like, here's how I see it. Here's the pros and cons. I'm not going to tell you what to do. This is a decision you have to make. My role is to educate you, let you see where I'm coming from. Here's my point of view. Here's the data. Here's the results. Here's the outcomes of patients I've seen. What would you like to do in this situation? Right. Whether we're talking about testosterone replacement, or whether we're talking about cardiovascular preventative measures. Those are yeah. both your decision. I don't get to deem the value of any of those. My license says I can't confer known harm to you, and I will hold to that standard, but it doesn't say I have to elevate the treatment of you know, cardiovascular disease over the treatment of well-being. I don't have to treat the, I don't have to elevate the treatment of diabetes over the treatment of something else. Like that's always, I, I believe in patient autonomy is paramount. Um, Absolutely. Especially when we don't have, well, we'll talk about this in another foreshadowing, but we didn't have class A top tier level evidence, double blind placebo-controlled randomized data that says, you know, they, oh, there's an observational piece for this, some retrospective data, and the dogma says, and my gut instinct says, testosterone is bad for you. And, and Correct, and you, yeah. Come on, man. I, I mean, right. if we're going to be evidence-based, let's be evidence-based. Let's right. talk about practice-changing data versus a study where there's a signal in the literature. Yeah, there's a signal. There's a signal. Something's there. Mm -hmm. But show me the double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized data. Show me the class A or top-tier data, and then maybe we can talk, right? And that's an interesting segue and probably into our next foray yeah. into this. Let's go down that cardiovascular um, and testosterone replacement talk. So, so if you're if – you're, so you, in fact, I know as your role um, as a medical device rep and, and also an advisory role to testosterone practices, TRT – clinics and things how do you summarize in a bulleted fashion because you got a nice breadth of experience in this mm -hmm. and a quick little thumbnail you know for the audience the role of estrogen and testosterone therapy and how to control it in men would you just real quick give me a little thumbnail sketch uh, to summarize? i tell my practitioners and i tell my patients it's it's it will make or break your subjective 100%. experience with testosterone yes. it's better to start in small doses and build rather than big doses, whether you're treating men or women. Um, I think it's easier to build in your dosing for women as well as in your prevention for men. Um, and I tell uh, 
physicians, frequent testing is your best friend. Know what you're looking at, right? You, you have to, that exactly. patient, that patient needs to understand what it feels like and they'll get good. But until then you got to do testing you got to check their estrogen levels. Right. And then lastly, do you ever use anything now dim for prevention and increasing free testosterone mm -hmm. levels and maybe some general health purposes in its other biochemical roles, but do you ever, have you ever had the need to use anything other than Arimidex to suppress estrogen in your TRT patients? Yeah, I do. There's some that just don't, A, there's some people, very few in my patient base that have a negative reaction, just uh, just don't feel good on it, just have a negative reaction Arimidex? to the actual medication. Yeah. Uh, use Aromacin would be the, my next go-to. Or oh. some people- Irreversible have, binding to Arimidex. Yeah. I don't use it very commonly. It's not this my go-to. But my patients who, A, have, I had a guy this week and he's just like, I feel like garbage when I take that pill you gave me right yeah and i'm like what do you mean you feel like garbage like i just get headaches i just feel oh really? i can't I, like he just had was having an, like an allergic reaction to it just a sensitivity to it um so in him we switched to aromacin and in my patients who like i just find myself one more quarter milligram one more quarter milligram one more quarter milligram one more you're like oh mm -hmm. you're just a really high estrogen converter let's go to some aromacin we back it all back down and they tend to do much better out of every hundred patients you would possibly, you know, you would treat it through the years mm -hmm. and in your, in your, you know, case logs and your, 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 the whole cadre of your observation, observation, clinical observations. How many times out of a hundred are you going to have to use aromacin? Mm, I mean, question. we're talking 1%, we're talking one out of a hundred. Yeah. 2%. Maybe two. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It's not very common. I like the, a Nash result because it's not a permanent, right? We, we, right. we, it doesn't permanently erase that, that that aromatase and right don't have, but some people some people need it very have few people ever, are allergic to it and very few people need it but have you ever used um novadex for i haven't personally no i'm either i was just kind of curious if you yeah found the need to do that i have some docs and tell me what you think about this have you ever used clomid for estrogen control never i saw that the other day for the first time i was like what do you mean he's using clomid for estrogen control doesn't mm -hmm didn't make sense to me at all. And he's like, and either the miscommunication from the patient. Um, what, how often do you use Clomid with your patients and a percentage, would you say? Mm, that's a whole another topic. I, I, know. I, um, I use many, it in, go ahead. I was gonna say, let me pose it a different way. How many times do you use Clomid in your over 40 population? Very little. Okay. That's Very what I was little. thinking. I don't know exactly how you practice, but my thought is you probably, probably similar. How about how this? Many, Go ahead. You ask the next one. How many times? Well, how many times do you use Clomid in the over forty population? Never. Yeah. Unless they, if they, you know, there's some, there's some decent data that it's been a way back, ways back now, but it was pretty well constructed data, pretty decent data sets, and obviously an institutional reputation that was good, and that was out of the Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. where they were using Clomid to treat androgen deficiency, and mm -hmm. just Clomid. And with what was reported as a high degree of patient satisfaction. So if there's anybody that's yeah. for whatever reason, doesn't want to use testosterone therapy or wants to try Correct. an alternative method, uh, you know, I'd do that. I would try that for them. Mm -hmm. And I, I've not found it to be for me. I've not found it to be as satisfactorily successful to my, you know, what I want to do for the patient or what they want mm -hmm. for themselves. But every now and then, I would say, you know, one out of every 200, maybe, or one out of every, yeah. three. I mean, it's rare, but you know, it's nice let to me, have a uh, toolbox. Let me, let me 
pose this theory to you. Do you think, here's my thought on tell me what you think of this thought. And I think sometimes a, a primary cares will use it as a ways, as a way to raise testosterone without giving a male testosterone. So they sort of feel safer and feel better yeah. about. Well, I mean, these, I, mean I, I, think that that is, I think that's the, the thought. I mean, yeah. Perception. Yeah. Yeah. It's and more and, natural. And, that's, what that's more natural testosterone. What I hear. Right. And I, I guess, you know, to me, because I have a couple of thoughts on that. That's an interesting topic you bring up. My thoughts on that are at the end of the day, I want to see that number change. It's not the milligram dose is almost arbitrary in mm-hmm. the sense that it's there's not a goal milligram dose. There's a goal there's serum level, right? I mean, that's how you're gonna induce change. So if the if the clomid produces that, that's fine. Sure. Um I get a little worried with Clomid therapy and HCG only because, and this is just a, this is complete bias. Okay. But <clears throat> through deductive reason, I just think wh- there are processes in the body in which we know, you know, tumors form or mm-hmm. there's neoplastic changes or I think when there's constant, either literally constant or pulse in higher volumes, stimulation of receptors that should would otherwise not be re, be stimulated in that mm, way so i, I get worried about the long term yeah. you know uh latex cell stimulation or uh, maybe hypothalamus and pituitary gland i wonder what that's going to do to people long term yeah. and, and i again i have no i don't know i'm not sitting here telling you i know yeah. any kind of uh, especially randomized control but i don't know any data at all but i just get worried about that that's number one number two is i tell patients too that <clears throat> Ideally, if we knew why you were hypogonadic mm-hmm. or had hypogonadism rather, and then you can kind of go down a rabbit hole, right? And you can kind of wear the tinfoil hat. Is it organophosphates mm-hmm. or these right. endocrine disruptors? What's going on in the food supply? What's going on in the, uh, the you know, whatever we're in, however we're getting things in our body that we really shouldn't, microplastics and all these other things. If I could somehow know what that was for sure. Not not conspiracy theory, but for sure no, and reverse it for you, and then thus restore you naturally to an optimal. Sure. I would do it, but yes. until that time, this is the best we've got, you know. Yeah. And it's safe, as best I can tell, it's safe. And we'll talk about more of that last next time, I guess. Yeah. Would you agree with that assessment? I would. Yeah. yeah. And I tell people, so it's interesting you brought up like the the cause, and that's a tough one. Everyone has their personal opinion, but I know we've had this conversation. Um, The youngest population base I see with low testosterone, I'm talking guys, 200 guys, 300 guys in their early thirties with a 250 total testosterone, low, low free testosterone um, are, there's a few patient bases that are really at a disadvantage. Firefighters, EMTs, police, and lastly, and that's in that order, uh, military. You know, let's oh, military. That's interesting. Let's talk about that. Let's have a part because you know why that is, right? They're just here's what I tell patients: extreme stress, lack of sleep, uh, interrupted sleep, and high that's, stress. That's exactly right. And, and this is interesting. You bring us up, and so we're this is completely de novo, and uh, you know, fortuitous or serendipitous. Sure. But I, I recently just did a just for my own personal sake did a lit search on this. Because I had always seen that too in shift workers, right? Mm. And yeah, shift disruptive work. sleep patterns. And there is some 
pretty good oh, is biochemical. There? Yeah, some good published literature. Oh, is there that. any data on testosterone though in those yes. populations? Interesting. Absolutely. So that's so interesting that you notice. Like I noticed that too empirically and uh, observationally on my own, and turns out it's, there's people I've noticed it and published on it. So we'll t- we can talk yeah. about that too. I had a 33 year old firefighter come in uh, yesterday in the clinic. Uh, had labs from a year ago from his primary t- total testosterone 300. Test, uh, primary didn't see any value in putting him on testosterone. And I said, let's repeat those labs, see where you're at. He's at 200, 204. Unbelievable. 33-year-old guy. Firefighter. Who do you Firefighter. want to have a high testosterone? Uh, uh, maybe the guy that's got to run into the This guy order. was in the police. Yeah, this guy was in the uh, uh, local police force. But I was like, holy geez. Well, He's like, know, have to make a decision to pull a weapon and yeah. the bad guys with the guns and you know, go into a burning house. I mean, He's like, I feel geez. like garbage every day. It's like, yeah, man, this population's getting abused. Unreal. All right, my man. Very interesting. All right, Doc. Another one Good of the one. books, we'll brother. To, you want to, so what do you want to talk about next? You want to talk about the cardiovascular safety profile and then maybe we'll go into the other things? Let's, Let's do it. Let's do cardiovascular. I've had a couple of recent patients uh, with some concerns, some post-MI patients. I've had a couple, Ooh. actually some stroke patients, a couple clot patients. Um, so that'd be a good topic. I could talk about how I handle those and my collaboration, if you will, or, yeah, or my we'll, discussions we'll with our cardiologists and look at the I data agree. and stuff like that. Perfect. All right, man. Been fun as always. All right, brother. See be ya. Good. Have a good one. Bye.